Shipping up to Boston. Shipping up to Boston. Shipping up to Boston. Shipping up to Boston. Shipping up to Costin, shipping up to Costin, shipping up to find my wooden leg. Remember the drop kick Murphys? I saw them. They got viral recently because uh, the guy, guy, the guy, the, the lead singer went on a rant about uh, the dang Trumpers and about MAGA, and uh, it's this righteous, like you know, remnant of of uh, of you know, uh, white ethnic instinctive proletarian uh, solidarity that used to be a thing in this country, but now really only exists as. Uh, as the ornament to, you know, the identities of otherwise successful uh, musicians, artisans, you know, people who don't have to really work for a living. Because having to really work for a living at this day and age, it really dr grinds you down. And one thing it does is it really strips your ability to think in solidaristic terms, at least in this country, given our... Uh, given the cultural context we live in and what we're really allowed to, how we're allowed to let our feelings resonate. Like what we can say around others that will be re 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 uh, returned and like, in, uh, and uh, elaborated upon. And, you know, that kind of feeling just kind of gets dissolved into nothing. And, and the real problem is, like he's doing this epic rant, and then he's got to say election denying, and it's like, look, yes, the election denial stuff is, it's, it is definitely a raising of the stakes for the conservative, like reactionary, uh, uh, like baronial revolt we have in this country. But are any elections not fucking rigged? Should any election not be denied in this fucking country? And how can you address that? You can't. You end up just sounding like a Trumper. And that leaves anybody else having to stand for the Democratic Party, which is just to anyone's fucking open eyes, a machine of misery and, and a fucking snow job, a, a giant car artistry factory, just like the Republicans are. But Republicans are, be are a benefit from the fact that they get to point out that the thing doesn't work. They get to point out that media is crooked. They get to point out that elections are not nonpartisan and uh, impartial. They get to point out the truth. They get to look at this. They get to... Uh, identify the specific nudeness of our institutions. And the Democrats cannot, they're cannot, they, they, because the institutions defend them. And, not, and it leads to this like absolutely incoherent thing now where you see people saying like, uh, Putin is this monster that is like a threat that we as a, as a, as a country have to defeat. And just, and, and Nazis are a threat in this country that are so big that we have to defeat them. How do we defeat them? By rallying behind the United States government. The thing that conjures these enemies in the first place. The, the, the structure of structures that determine all of its resistance. All, the form of its, of its resistance 
it gets to determine that that's what being a hegemon means. It means that you don't have to face some sort of proletarian resistance as your hegemony falls apart. No, you get to fight on the terrain of national bourgeois, the groups of elite fucking rentiers and predators and vampires grabbing control of whatever resources they can in order to fend off total proletarianization. That's it. No solidarity beyond just national projects of national bourgeois domination. Resistance to not capitalism, but to the financialization, the final, the global homo that they're resisting is not on behalf of the people. It's on behalf of the nation as conceived by the bourgeois dictatorship that runs it. And I'm sorry, that cannot ever encompass socialism. It can never produce socialism. It can never bring work. Workers who go along for the ride will never get socialism out of it. The answer is to huff gasoline and wait for the end. Well, wait. I mean, we're all waiting every day, right? Like, we live our lives in anticipation of something, right? Can't say that's not true. So the question is, what does your gas huffing look like? I argue that rooting for one of these parties is huffing gasoline. Getting it into your head that one of these parties or the other is going to save you from what's coming is the huffing of the fucking gasoline. Thinking that mega communism is going to somehow, oh, what, you don't like the deep state? Well, I don't like the deep state either. Oh, let's get together. What does the deep state mean, by the way? Who defines what the deep state is? Not you or some other asshole you met in a chat room. The fucking party. And who depends what the party defines as it? Concentrated fucking capital, you dullards. I, I don't debate, and I would not debate these people because I wouldn't want to raise them up because they are marginal and it doesn't matter. It's just people trying to make some money, find some group of people who want a story told to them that'll feel good, that'll be delicious, good-smelling gasoline. So who am I to stop them? But I also don't want to help them, and debating them would only help them. But I just I don't understand how anyone can make any argument that they are a Marxist, that they understand things as a, uh, uh, politics as an expression of material class interests, and class conflict, and not see that the party structure, that uh, the, not just the party structure, but the entire cultural superstructure that produces MAGA cannot be uh, 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 conquered because what? You agree on some abstract issue because that's not what it's composed of. It's composed of cultural affinities produced culturally. The actual spine of policy is determined by money. And it's like, I'm sorry, that's basic narcissist analysis. How do you overthrow that? How do you argue? No, no, no. You see, we're going to like unite with them and just talk to them. You're all just voting for Republicans, moron. Any electoral political project means voting and rooting, voting for a party and then going online every day to reaffirm your vote that you haven't taken yet and won't take for six months or 10 months or whatever the fuck, reaffirming it with your expressions of political identity online and fantasizing that your, your uh, engagement in that contest is somehow moving the needle somewhere. 
So if all you're doing is voting, then your 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 precious ideas about well, actually, uh, in order, uh, uh, capitalism is what's undermining our ability to create uh, 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 the sort of uh, traditional family structures that the that the humble working class of America truly prefer. Uh, oh, that's very nice. That's a very interesting analysis. What are you going to do with it? You're going to piss it into the ether. Meanwhile, the party is going to do what the party does. And it's going to frame every resultant misery in culture war terms. And all you will end up doing is rooting along for some one flavor of technocratic uh, uh, genocide. And the thing is, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if those people, the MAGA people, would be reachable if you sat them all down and got to talk to them. Or you like worked with them towards a common goal. Like if you were in a workplace together with them. Now, now we're talking. Now, if you're talking about, hey, let's get everybody who works at this Amazon recruitment, recruitment facility uh, or fulfillment, fulfillment center, uh, this Walmart. If we got all these people together to work to better their uh, working conditions, my God, all of a sudden their understanding of politics is going to change by doing. But that's not what this is arrest. This is not what that's about. This is all, this says uh, all that stuff's a distraction. The labor movement, the the new thing, the new hotness. By the way, for these people is to say that the uh that like the Bolshevik Party and uh was never actually driven by uh, union uh, uh a, 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 <clears throat> union organizing in Russia. That 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 it never tailed the labor movement. That's the argument. That it was always just like precious vanguard. And it's like, yeah, the leadership was this like little diamond of of uh, of a doctrinal perfection created in these, uh, you know, in the, in the oyster the oysters made in the in the in the uh, or I'm sorry, the pearls made in the oysters' mouths of London and Geneva or whatever the fuck. But they were only ever able to get to do anything because when the war started, they were able to address vast swaths of Bolshevik party members who were. Members of the armed forces, people, uh, factory workers in large concerns where thousands of people worked, and they all lived in neighborhoods right next to each other. And that created a network of, of idealized, like or ideologically, um, ideologically aligned, politically conscious workers. Now, yeah, the Bolsheviks came along and were able to basically like direct this flow. Not completely. Uh, the July days shows pretty definitively that the, the Bolsheviks were only ever like lightly in the saddle of the workers and uh, uh, troop soldiers movement in, 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 Mos in uh, St. Petersburg. Because in July, when Lenin was like, it is not time for a fucking revolt. We do not have the, the resources to do it. We don't have the capacity. That is when the workers and, uh, and soldiers of the Bolshevik party said, fuck that. It's time to go to the streets. And the Bolsheviks essentially had to post facto validate that movement in order to maintain their credibility with the workers. It was only after that uh, that entered that pulse was beaten back that like the the working class got the message that Lenin and his people had already been able to figure out that it wasn't time yet. When time was right, they were both ready for it. They were coming at it from either other ends, but neither would have been possible without the other. But the crucial thing is is that the party itself would have been powerless without them. And, the, and, and MAGA communism is not 
about that. The new uh, argument is, is that uh, X, Y, and Z don't count as working class. Therefore, should not uh, their organizing organizing should not be uh, considered meaningful. Uh, you sh- it should be uh, it's a distraction. No, what isn't a distraction is waiting for is rooting for J- uh, fucking JD Vance and what Blake Masters to get to the Senate so that they can what what precisely do you think they're gonna fucking do? They're gonna post the epic Mecca Communism uh, Act of 2023 where we all get Medicare for all. But there's only two je- two pronouns, and you get one like issued for you by the government, and all the liberals are owned. You think they're gonna pass that? You fucking dullards. They might pass some shit like yeah, uh, uh, no other pronouns are allowed anywhere, but the ones you're worn with. But you're sure shit not getting some a- uh, attendant MAGA communist social welfare system because there's nothing pushing for that. This is all happening in the political realm, the two parties that are not driven from below. They're driven from above. But I mean, people, but I still appreciate and sympathize with that instinct a little bit because looking at the people who have, especially the people who supported Bernie in the primaries, who are now grasping to the fucking hull of the Democratic Party, desperately trying to turn it into some vehicle for uh, for uh, working class aspirations, socialist vision, is so sad that I could understand wanting to get as far away from that sort of thing as possible because it is a grotesque spectacle to watch people being like, look, why can't the left take a win, okay? We're getting what we want. They're doing what they want. They're doing what they think works for them. If there's some fucking crumbs that fall that you get to pick up, Congratulations, but you had nothing to do with it. You are at the mercy of this party as just a spectator and rooter for it, which is what your politics are. Your argument explicitly in every page of every fucking magazine is this Democratic Party and its left side are in some sort of cons- some sort of uh, negotiating position with one another. And that means that we're partners. The same way that the uh, ownership and labor unions were partners in the fucking 70s. When they said, hey, we're moving all the fucking manufacturing jobs to Mexico. What are you going to do about it? And because they didn't want to lose their jobs as labor leaders, the labor union said, fine, we'll talk them into that. And they did. Because by that point, the working class was no longer uh, asserting their own interests. And why? This is a perfect segue. Why weren't they able to do that? In chapter five, I believe. Seven? I don't know. I'll look it up when we get there. In the next chapter of Richard Lackman's Last Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Powers, he talks specifically about this question. And the world that, at the end of this chapter, the political realm that he sketches, the one we live in, the post-90s one we live in, because it was really Clinton who created the bipartisan consensus around neoliberalism and made it a, 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 uh, a closed loop. That was created uh, by, according to Lachman, structural factors within the elite ruler ruling class of America. The array of cl- forces that had sustained uh, the post-war American utopia were compromised, were uh, destabilized, and constant power concentrated away from sort of a consensus 
stalemate between different uh, um, stakeholders and uh, a complete domination by one group of elites, the specific uh, finance capital elites, within what had been before a more uh, unified or uh, uh, unified in purpose because of stalemated balance of powers. So this chapter answers the question, how did we get that? Because what happened, we've talked about a million times on this show, the big 70s shift. But why is the, a thing that's harder to get at and that Latchman tries to here sketch out? And it's all building on what he had already established in the first, all these earlier chapters, because it seems weird. He's talking about fucking the Dutch Republic and he's talking about the English British Empire. What's going on? It's because he's trying to show in previous iterations of hegemony how over time elite power structures go from uh, everyone being sort of aligned in a general uh, direction of policy with a, 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 a understanding that it's towards everyone's benefit to a situation where elites are competing against one another and not for like the spoils of a system and not trying to keep it moving. And that happens during this period. As soon as it's born, like, or as soon as it's birthed into being, the post-war uh, utopia begins to collapse. Like, I think that's the thing people don't understand is that by the time uh, the 60s even blow up, that is the moment when you see economic, uh, uh, like the economic boom hit its apex. But that's just it. That is the moment of apex. That, that is the, that is the uh, high water mark. And that's why it's such a combustible era. Because it's a liquid moment. It's like, oh, we're breaking towards something. How are we going to array ourselves as this declension begins? Because that's what everyone was feeling, was feeling sort of the air go out of things and be like, oh, this is it. How are we going to manage? Now, if they had maintained this alliance of powers that had the working class represented within it, then you get something that is a decline, but not, uh, but not away from uh, like good, not not away from health of the nation state. It's it's it's, uh, but away from the concentration of capital as the as the full, the sole uh, the sole programming, the sole motive uh, prerogative of the system, which is what we got. But it's already the contradictions in the fifties already already uh, starting to to uh, accelerate. But this, but the early sixties, Kennedy's presidency really is this moment when it's like a new frontier, right? That was his uh, that was the slogan, and that literally is what we were looking at: a new frontier to save what would otherwise be a uh, a elite structure doomed to eventual destruction, right? Because that's what happens. As we discussed in all these other chapters, hegemonies begin to decline when there is no longer a shared sense of purpose at the top. Uh, and that starts to blow up in the 60s. Uh, and when the, econ when the uh, rate of profit starts going down, uh, it pretty much doomed our democratic aspirations unless we were able to create a new frontier. And a new frontier would have been, I think, in the eyes of ideas of Kennedy and I think 
And the idea of most educated Americans and the, the folk belief of like the working class who made up the labor movement was that, yes, we would see crisis and we would see a difficulty, but we would work together to abolish poverty, basically, to end vast disparities uh, between wealthy and the poor. But that is against the exact drive of the, of the engine with, within. And it's the friction between them that defines the frictions of our era. And then one wins over the other. And it happens in that uh, crucible point, that late 60s uh, crucial era, when popular energy is everywhere, but it is not concentrated. It's everywhere. It's a fucking fire hose. Because the, uh, the structures that had sustained mass action and been able to articulate a political power from mass action had been uh, destroyed. But you, you kind of have to say, if there's a reason that we got one outcome out of the other there, maybe it's because the system fought back. I mean, Kennedy, the guy who said, hey, there's a new frontier uh, of socialized, of socializing the means of life and not making consumption and conquest the only mark of uh, satisfaction, advancement, righteousness, the entire uh, hierarchy is the definer of value. And of course, that is the socialist dream, like the, the, inc the, incanta the incarnation of the Christian uh, dream, the, the universal dream, honestly, of, uh, of life in harmony with the full uh, biological gamut of life that we're all part of. But one of the big reasons that we didn't get that is because at the bottom, the working class organizations are being dissolved. And at the top, a lot of the people who really most emphatically believed that there was a, a there was a, a socializing of Amer of the world, of course, because they were at the top, they could not think that it would involve any kind of class war. They have to uh, pretend that class war isn't real. They have to pretend in their minds to stay where they are. The class war is not the engine of all social conflict, and is not the defining tr character of class society. They cannot accept that. That means that they cannot address what's around them. Clear-eyedly, and that's why Kennedy got owned, why Johnson got owned, why Nixon, in his own twisted way, got owned, why Carter got owned, why everybody got fucking owned, because they thought they were dealing with a technical problem when they were really dealing with the intensification of class conflict, class war that required mobilization to win a class war. But no, the people who inherited that new tech frontier, there were a bunch of fucking, uh, you know, kids who had gotten drunk on Werner von Braun on uh, on the Disney Channel, telling him that all of the problems had been solved and only had to be uh, expressed technologically. And so the, his chapter here, chapter six, from consensus to paralysis in the United States, 1960 to 2016, starts with a uh, quote from a speech from President Kennedy from 1962. <clears throat> Most of us are conditioned for many years to have a political viewpoint Republican or Democrat, liberal, conservative, moderate, the fact of the matter is that most of the problems, or at least many of them that we now face, are technical problems, are administrative problems. They are very sophisticated judgments 
which do not lend themselves to the great sort of passionate movements which have stirred this country so often in the past. Now they deal with questions which are beyond the comprehension of most men. And of course, this is a accurate acknowledgement that, oh man, we have reached a degree of te cultural, technological, uh, social sophistication that belies group management. We do need a class of technocrats. The thing is, is though those technocrats have to be dominated by a political hegemony, a political identity, a political force expressing its will through political institutions, guiding that technology. And look what happened with Tr Kennedy. He thought that's what he was dealing with. And then it turns out, oh no, the CIA has its own in interests. They align with yours only along some axis. And if you decide to uh, increase conflict with them, well, they will increase conflict with you. And then the, the more one with more power wins. And oh yeah, it turns out that the figurehead leader of a fake democracy that's been completely hollowed out by the last 10 years of CIA uh, and uh, Republican Party machinations to, to gut the labor movement, to, dis, to cast to the winds the, the, uh, the, the products of the social solidarity of the, of the New Deal generation, replace it with television and suburbs, and carry out a, a stealth third world war in the rest of the, of the, of, on the rest of the planet to kill millions of people. It's not just, and, and the political part of that is, is just along for the ride. And that's what we've been dealing with, is that this is really when the system becomes self-aware. Uh, when it can, we realize it can pick and choose the specific people in every one of the seats of its power. It does not have to worry about being having its institutions uh, overtaken by concentrations of class-aligned people because those uh, structures, those organs of state have atrophied, and new ones have grown up. So this chapter is about how we got from uh, these, the New Deal social contract to the neoliberal one. Uh, and so it starts off with a very succinct and accurate uh, laying out of the story that we've told on this show a million times about what specifically happens. You have this, this broadly shared prosperity, this uh, this high-profit environment in the post-war world, Keynesian consensus structures. Then in the 70s, a U-turn towards deregulation, tax cuts, uh, the destruction of labor power, the whole, the whole nine yards, the whole Mount Perilin Society playbook. We've seen this a million times. And so the question becomes, why did this occur? Why did these specific... Uh, new challenges get these new solutions because the government was acting differently. Like it was applying different rubrics to the challenges. It was, it was behaving from a different ideological playbook. How did that happen? How did everybody decide to change? So there's a few different uh, theories that get batted about. And he, of course, like he usually does, goes through all of them to point out either how they're wrong or they're incomplete and how his elite, con his elite theory, his elite conflict theory fills in the gaps. It's very effective, I have to say. So he says the five factors that usually go into this are, one, that there is just this secular decline in the American economy, uh, where you, you, uh, the economic competitors rise up, they're able to, chat, uh, to compete on the world stage now that they've been made into industrial economies. Uh, the globalization does just reduce the American share of profit. 
Uh, and so that heightens social conflict uh, within the uh, elites and between classes. And that's like a world system theory idea. That's, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, like, but that's just a description of what's happened. It doesn't tell you why they responded the way they did. Because, yes, there was a neoliberal turn, but it manifested itself differently in different places. Like some places deregulated, some places cut taxes, some places privatized. And it was different in the different uh, capitalist uh, central states, which was determined politically. So why did we get the specific type of rearrangements of structures that we got? It's a, that is the first one only raises that question, can't answer it. Uh, so then there is, uh, in addition to that, the world systemic uh, observation of the crisis caused by this secular stagnation, creating a, uh, a more efficient structure. Basically, that uh, for the system to sustain itself, it required neoliberal institutions, because neoliberal institutions, if made um, increased profits by increasing efficiency, that is, increasing market penetration into otherwise public goods, that creates more avenues for profit. It makes up for profit that is lost in the other systems, right, as rates of profit go down. Oh, no, we have this rate of profit problem. How do we solve it? We create new profit in new markets. We literally have to public privatize elements of life to create these new profit streams that can prop up an otherwise uh, secularly declining profit picture. And that is, again, 100% true, a description of how things go, but it does not, again, again, answer the question, why did we get the specific constellation of neoliberal responses in the United States versus other places. We got to look elsewhere for that. Then there is the end of the Cold War. There's no more uh, Soviet threat. There's no more need to uh, keep the working class happy so they don't defect to communism or socialism. Uh, and then that goes away. And so they're able to uh, operate with a freer hand. And again, true as far as it goes, but it leaves out the question. Why now? Why specifically now? Because this happens in the 70s when the Soviet Union is still around. So something else is going on. Even though, like, the end of the Soviet Union is why the 90s are able to be the moment when it, like, totally globalizes. But it's born in America before that. It's born in the Western capitalists before that, when the Soviet Union is still a going concern. And then you have the fact that mobilizations from the left and right of politics... The, the new left, anti-war, uh, uh, civil rights, or uh, uh, black civil rights, feminist movements of the left uh, against the uh, new right radicalism that emerges in response to it. And those forces do put huge pressure on the political system and destroy previous electoral coalitions. But it doesn't answer the question of uh, why uh, governments are choosing specific ways to deal with this new reality. Because at a certain point, you're assuming away the uh, the actual mo like motive and just going with the idea that like it was all going to happen anyway. And the thing is, it was. But it was made to happen in moments by people who 
thought there was another way at the time, you know, thought that there was some live, live wire. And it was their free action that like animates history. And what they didn't know is that it, their hand had been pulled, their, their hand had been uh, tied by much grander forces that they could ever know uh, shaping them. And what, how, so what happened? What structurally changes to push direction, to push our politics so specifically partisanly reactionary, like to embody this specific, it's not just neoliberal politics, policies, it is this new right politics. Why does that become the product of this crisis that emerges? And uh, the answer that he comes up with is pretty interesting. I hadn't actually seen it put this specific way before. So we talk about how the, the 50s, early 60s saw this arrangement of uh, powers, elite structures of power with different uh, popular bases behind them, right? All in alignment. So you have finance capital. You have local uh, extractive capital. You have uh, manufacturing you have uh, a retail uh, economy. And all of these have, uh, oh, and you have the people who work for all of these people who largely, thanks to the New Deal era, have some sort of uh, uh, collective bargaining rights that get transferred into political power. So the thing that holds all of this together is always money. and it's concentrations of capital and everything else flows flows out of that. It's the black hole that everything else revolves around. And you have these big concentrations in the big cities, but because this is the United States, you also have our distinctive federalist arrangement and you have these local concentrations of capital spread across the country as the leg legacy really of our Jeffersonian yeoman uh, uh, tradition, the thing that animated uh, us building this thing in the first place against our will. We didn't want to be under the yoke of capitalism. We did it accidentally because we thought we were keeping our freedom by accessing land instead of putting ourselves under the yoke of governance. But the governance was still there. It still became a behemoth just behind your back and without your consent. It's a tragedy, really. It's the final tragedy of mankind, if you think about it. And so that means banks, right? So across the, the center of this country, you had a situation where they had these small regional, small and medium-sized regional banks that would lend money out to the networks of capitalists who would then give the money back to them. Those capitalists would uh, uh, support different people running for office. And the people who worked for these capitalists would also vote for people who would go up for political office. And they would represent these political coalitions. And they would argue amongst themselves. And the uh, the well-being of the uh, electorate was taken care of by this local network of patronages where you'd have these lo the local political parties dispensing patronage from a central kitty, you know, the, the old um, the old pork barrel system that everyone is always railing against and they made illegal under Obama, right? Oh, no, they're writing in their pork barrel projects. That's literally why you would vote for someone. That's the only reason you should really realistically be voting for somebody to go to fucking represent you is to get money to your fucking district. What, I'm sorry, what else good are they? They're going to make some speeches. They're going to like, uh, they're going to, uh, they're going to declare national fetus rights day. They're going to do some fucking bullshit. They're not going to help you. 
And the thing is, is that that is something that every interest group within an area has an agreement. Everybody wants that money. The capitalists want that money. The employees want that money. The unions want that money. Everybody wants that money. And this alignment of interests, it excludes socialism and it excludes uh, uh, communism. And it at that and and, and therefore it, it with every moment it passes it further alienates and depoliticizes the working class, but in that moment the working class is still represented through its, uh, through its unions and through its political uh, contributions and the political parties that are beholden to them. But what happens in the sixties and the seventies is there is a huge explosion in mergers at the regional level in banking. And I got to give Latchman credit. I've never seen this pointed to as a cause for a, like a proximal cause for the seventies neoliberal term. Like when you're describing it moment by moment. Uh, and according to Latchman, this is the idea here. And it corresponds to the way that, you know, like the, the Amsterdam burgers hijacked the Dutch state to their interests that, which ran counter to the interests of the Dutch state. Uh, once this happens, this merger, uh, network. Th th this creates this network of uh, much bigger regional behemoths who now are able to dominate a large geographic space and therefore uh, are much are, are uh, able to dwarf all the local interests that they used to compete amongst. Oh, banking was just one seat at a table. Well, now that seat is a seven million pound gorilla composed of a multi-state banking uh, empire. All of a sudden, you have a veto over everybody. You have a veto over the mere politicians, and you certainly have a veto over the fucking uh, workers. And what this did was it wiped out the old political machines, and not even talking about like East Coast machines, just the machinery that that is your understanding of, oh, I vote for this candidate, and they then bring money to the district. It got replaced by, fuck the district. Give me specifically money. And it's been doing that ever since. And every warping distortion of our politics that seems to undermine its fundamental legitimacy comes from that action, which has been incredibly successful at keeping money at the top, hoovering up capital to the top, but has been at the expense of every social institution, of the legitimacy, of, 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 of uh, this felt sense of, of safety and, and uh, peace. Anything that like the American dream is supposed to be has just sucked out of the marrow of the bones of society. But it, but it is to the narrow interest of these new capital concentrations. So, like, getting money to, to districts is now a non-political question, right? Like, those, those powers got broken up, and they got replaced by the NGO network. Somebody, somebody asked why the hell we talked about that awful Hillary Clinton show. And, yeah, yeah Hillary is meaningless. Uh, uh, Hillary is obviously totally uh, irrelevant. Like, this is sort of just, you know, playing the hits, really. But, one, I think it was a genuinely funny show. But, two... The way that they like address any question of like, hey, what, 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 what is, you know, uh, what is, where could any relief from our suffering come from? The answer is in the form of these 
non-governmental, non-political organizations that do things for the sake of good, by good people doing good things for good reasons. This secular priesthood that's going to just dispense uh, largesse to you and it's going to solve LBGTQ uh, discrimination, it's going to uh, end systemic racism, it's going to stop global warming, Government's not going to do any of that. Government is, is uh, so that means, well, then who's voting? Well, who's voting and why are they voting? Who's voting? Uh, not very many people who used to, th who've, nobody who still thinks politics should be about getting stuff. Oh, this is just a fucking fraud. You're not going to vote if you're normal. It's a increasingly just going to be freaks, freaks of one stripe or another who just can't get, stop getting off on the spectacle of politics. So now you start, the only reason people go, turn out to vote at the local level is to send somebody to Washington to be part of a freak show for them. So what, what difference does it make if they can't get anything for you? Like these are no longer questions that are dealt with politically. So all it becomes is what's a more entertaining story. And we all know who's got the fucking sizzle, who's doing this, because you have this spectacle that used to be a unified psyche that we were all part of, right? Like there was a, uh, there is a consensus reality con conveyed in a mainstream media that we were all participants in. And within that, there's like a, a constant battle between uh, forces, good and evil, that are laid out in the political, in the uh, um, the cultural firmament, the, the the television, the movies that we use. Shit. Am I? Did it stop? Am I good? So who fills in the gap? Because these guys can't govern. Who fills in the gap? Money. Money fills the gap everywhere. Everybody else is left to just root from the sidelines in a, in a political contest where they have been neutered and not, don't even, aren't even aware of it. So that's that chapter. And I think... Uh, it does a very good job of laying out this this idea because once you see it that way, it makes everything else come into focus because like the right wing just takes over the Republican Party and turns it into this this horrifying uh, juggernaut that is at fundamental odds with the long term sustenance of the system, which is another reason that people want it because people are like break it up, just break this thing up, and that is why the the Democrat boosters are so uh, sad because. They're propping up the monster. They're Alec Guinness in the Bridge on the River Kwai. They, the thing that is destroying them is they've turned into their savior because they're too afraid of the alternative. They're too afraid of falling. Because they are, by and large, incredibly comfortable middle-class people. And revolution is to them, to, is to them would be not an explosion, not an not a, uh, erotic symphony. It would be a terrifying decline.
It would be a horror. It would be a it would be a nightmare. They would have no faith that it would be able to be anything other than a failure that they would be immiserated by. Because they don't really believe in it. Because their politics are based on their guilt. They don't really want to see things change. Why would they? They're turning, they're going okay for them. You can't blame them for this. This is where we all go wrong. We want to turn this into moralism. This is just basic self-interest. Everyone is basically self-interested. We've been made that way. Everyone everywhere is basically self-interested, but definitions of self vary culturally. And we have a very, 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 very narrow, psychotically narrow, psychopathically narrow definition of self that's been created by capital. Because when we look at this and we say, okay, it was bank mergers. Well, that, if we're going to do Latchman-style thinking, we think, hold on a minute, then why were there bank mergers? And the answer is, very simply, capital had sufficiently concentrated that it had nowhere else to go. It was spilling its banks, and all it could do was absorb uh, outside. It would be, it would absorb, uh, it would, it would absorb outward as far as it would be allowed to. By the organism, by the social organism it was part of, by the elite structure it had been a part of, it becomes malignant, it becomes uh, uncontrollable, it becomes the blob. That is why if there's going to be anything like a, a meaningful revolution, uh, an, alter an opportunity for people to act righteously, which is what I would define a revolution as, a moment when righteous action uh, flows from uh, just the, our basic sense of uh, Identity, you know, like uh, a, 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 I hate to get hippie about it, but, you know, like a consciousness shifting, which is a real phenomenon, but it happens as a result of struggle. It doesn't bring struggle into being. That is what we all get wrong. That is what our culture teaches us. That's why we're all suffocating in the garage, because we've been taught since we were fucking born that we all think a thing and then it pops something into being that we can then participate in. No, we have to do the thing that spectation and spectacle won't allow us to do, which is act. We must act. And that is the hardest thing because action in the current context feels like it could not be the beginning of some, uh, uh, some perfect summation of like libidinal and spiritual desires. No, uh, some horrible uh, destruction. And only if you're like in the throes of religious ecstasy would you want to become a martyr. And most of us are not in the throes of religious ecstasy. Like I think David Graeber proves his liberalism because he is fundamentally incapable of recognizing that it is the actions that create the kind of uh, breathtaking uh, plasticity within human social forms that he rightly notes. But he thinks, no, they had to have all wanted to do it. It's like, no, people do things out of necessity, man. And it's what necessity shapes us into.
And that means we can't have any hope for this system. But we can have absolute hope in each other and for each other. That even no, no, no matter what happens, we all have the ability to act. And we don't have to blame ourselves if we think, we've, I've acted badly before, I've been frozen in the spotlight. You don't know what moments are going to mean things. You don't know when the, uh, the aperture of action opens. None of us can do that. All we can do is try to be ready for it. And that means cleansing ourselves of pointless guilt. Cleansing ourselves of the neurotic need to be uh, righteous. And, and, and filling instead with some sense of, 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 a, of a... We have to essentially, fundamentally, have faith in ourselves. In our intentions, I guess I would say. We have to have faith in our intentions. And when I say our, not each other's, I mean our individually. Like, you have to, you personally have to accept your own good intentions. But then you have to not wed them to a, a, a cosmic, psychic brain drain, a libidinal uh, dance where you get to build up guilt and then discharge it instead of dealing with the feeling, dealing with the feeling that comes from our intention. And what is that? God damn it, I'm a cheese ball. I hate it. Fucking love. Stupid. It's dumb to have to say it. It feels cringe. They've made it so that the only way to really express the, the like the four dimensionality, the real fourth dimensional aspect of life that affects us all and that we can recognize and we can articulate, but we are just not programmed to. We are we are pushed away from it every moment. Very cheesy. I'm. I know. I'm. I'm. A, I'm cringing my balls off over here. But that's just to say that fixating on hopelessness, the 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 lack of like a realistic vision of a of a breaking of the dawn in ter- in like large scale terms, social terms needs to be disengaged from an idea that we must subjectively experience that in a pure state of, of annihilation and immiseration where we are finally punished or we are finally uh, destroyed by that which we feared. Because I think if you really begin from that premise, so many of the of the little like sadomasochistic whips that can just get snapped on you to like keep you away from like a clear understanding of like what where you are in the world and like what surrounds you is uh, that The fear of, of, of being punished, basically, I think. The fear that, that we all have, that our mistakes must be in some commensurate way repl- responded on us. 
And that's because we can only imagine our lives as like these finite moments, series of moments when we are always only failing, right? Like, because we're only looking backward. Like, we're always, when we're not in very specific moments of, like, very concentrated action, we are in, the, in our past. And so the idea that at one, there will be a point when that past just is never reconciled, uh, it's too, it, we can't conceive of it, and so we're only disquieted by it, when we should really remember that, like, oh, we can't conceive of it, so it's not something that can ever be, in, we can ever have to, like, if we're afraid of it, and it can never be experienced, then what are we actually afraid of? And I think what we are afraid of is that our mistakes will never be remedied. I think that's what we're actually afraid of. Uh, but that's but the mistakes only have proximate ramifications. They only exist because they're they have been given uh, meaning by your experience of them. But once that track is gone, the the uh, the consequences also disappear. So there is no need to uh, fear judgment other than your own judgment of what you've done. Because I think what we all fear is that we will get to a point when we understand what really mattered, then we looked at what we actually did and have a moment, an, a, a, a fucking... Rod Serling ass ironic punishment moment of realizing, oh my God, what did I do? And then just going out, ending with like that eternal scream against like what could have been. But again, that's only if you you have to like be forced to live eternally with uh, the failures. But I think you live eternally with the fucking experiences, the real connected experiences of love that you had, that's what actually endures. That's what actually uh, persists after action has ended. That's the residue that actually lives on. And so mistakes will always be redeemed. And people say you can't believe that because then why wouldn't you want to do evil to people? But if you really believe that, then you would never have any need and any desire to be do evil to people. Why would you ever seek to do evil to someone? You'd know where it goes ends up. You know that you will just have to deal with it, that it will eventually come back at you, that you will not be able to face it. The longer you go without facing it, the worse it will be. Because we can't control the future, which means the sum of our, our actions are morally neutral, no matter what we do. But the love is not. That comes from actions within specific moments that reflect higher states of consciousness, that persist, that ring throughout 
the universe. All right, this is getting very, uh, very space cadet. Sorry, sorry, guys. We love it, don't we, folks? We love it when Matt uh, goes off his knot. Because I spent a lot of my life deeply judging myself, every, every moral decision I made, and finding myself disgusting. I felt like I was a bad, I was doing the wrong thing. And, it was and I, I, what I realized later is that I was just unhappy. I was stuck in an unhappy state, static situation for a bunch of reasons. And all I could focus on was my contribution to it, like the, the things I did wrong. But every time I, I made the wrong choice, it was because I was paralyzed by my indecision about what to do. And so every decision I made became freighted with this huge moral consequence. Like, if I make the wrong one, I'm going to live with something awful. Now, of course, the joke is, because I only experienced stuff that was, like, still bad, I, only ne I never felt like anything, I was getting anywhere much better. What do you know? Every decision was wrong. So I was ruled by this fear of, of doing the wrong thing in every sense of that, which then made me do the, the, the really wrong thing because one thing, I fought it for a while, but once I truly like stopped uh, judging myself that way, like I forgave myself in a way that I always used to think was, was cheap and was a way to like uh, get, uh, get out of having to pay some like real moral uh, debt. The thing I've noticed, though, is that the way I treat people now is way, way, way better. I am much better to the people in my life than I was before. So, and that's the thing that it, I don't have to wonder, oh, are you just trying that? Are, are you, are you just want that to be true? No, because it's, it's self-generating based on a, a, a lower level of anxiety. Like, I was just, I, I used to get madder. I used to get a lot more angry. I would fly off the handle and I would, I would say things that I did not mean. And then I would afterwards completely like ask myself, what the fuck did you say that? Why did you do that? And I would be like, wait, how would I? And I don't do that anymore. Like those moments don't happen. Like I don't, I don't get mad. Like one thing, um, just little things like, so I, I've always, I've always been a sweater. I'm very, I'm very sweaty. I don't know if I, I technically would have that hydroponica shit they have uh i mean yes of course i've apologized a million times my god i don't know if it's been accepted but I, i'm not in charge of that is the thing uh and i'm making restitution the way i can but yeah i kind of have to go there because so i am a sweaty man i've always hated sweating like i would feel the things running down my face i would be made angry by it and it would i would feel short i would make short be uh snippy because of it i would it would, it would affect my mood and uh i just we i went and saw uh the elvis movie uh in august and the movie theater was hot as shit there was no uh ac and we watched the movie 
and I'm sweating and I'm like rubbing my forehead and uh, the movie is okay. It drags in the middle. I like the Tom Hanks stuff, uh, but you know, I'd say, you know, mediocre, like a, like a three and a half stars. I give most movies I see three and a half stars because that's uh, most movies are about three and a half stars. I, I, my, when I did letterbox, I had like a perfect parabola, like a perfectly rational distribution because like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not a sicko who only watches sicko shit. You know, I, I have a broad palette, so I'm going to get the, the normal distribution. And my, my distribution be normal as hell. But anyway, so he finished his movie, and uh, we're getting up, and, and so he's like, damn, it's hot in here, like, like that. And I realized, like, yeah, I've been sweating my balls off in this movie theater this entire thing, and I didn't even really notice. Like, even when I was, like, wiping blood, sweat off my body. Like, I was not agitated. And I was like, that is just a different, that is a thing that I could look at and be like, oh, that is a physical, like, uh, sensed, subjective experience that cannot be reasoned away, logicked away. It's just a thing that's real. And I can either believe my senses or I can do what I always used to do, which is try to pry around reality to find the scene to escape the horrible present. I feel like now I don't sweat the present. Not as much. But we'll see, you know, like we all we all know that we're on the precipice of something. We all feel like, oh, things could get very different very quickly, and we don't know if we can deal with that. We're barely dealing with what we have now, right? That's what makes things so fearful. But like what my belief is that all of us are going to be forced to if there is some sort of crisis, which we all are both afraid of and also sat, like yearning for, which is why we cannot say we think, no, it's coming or not. This is why we have to give up our, throw up our hands at the, at the big prognosticative questions. Because we are both equally, we have an equal interest in it both being true and not true. I know that was true when I was racked by uh, hypochondria for years. I was always in the cycle of like, oh, I got a tumor. I can feel it growing. Here's where it is. I can feel it. It's going there and there and there. And then I would feel like, oh, maybe I have, I'm having a heart attack. I think I might, I might be having a heart attack. Oh, it's, uh, there's some chest pain there. What's going on? Oh, I'd have a pain in my leg for a while. Oh, you know, what? it could be a bone cancer or something like that. And it would be this thing of like, I didn't want it to be true. The worst thing in the world would be for it to be true horribly. Horrible. But at the same time, I did sort of want everything to end, you know? I wanted my life relationship, the relationship I had to my life to change. And hey, if you have actually have cancer, that would be different. But also, the only way I could conceive of things being different is if I was going to die, punished, finally, for my bad decisions that have all been turned into moral decisions. And it was only when I kind of got rid of the idea that I would be punished that I could feel, because I still feel the hypochondria stuff. I still have those sensations. But I just don't get into the uh, cycle of just, okay, it could be this, 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 but then being like, well, realistically, no, it's probably not. And, you know, and basically uh, getting myself to the point where I never have to go to the doctor, which would end my little cycle and make me have to start a new one. 
And that's the thing. Yes, I'm the only one holding myself to these standards, which is why I can use them as I as they because you need moral guideposts. You need ideas of what's right and wrong that transcend that like are are turned into some sort of ideology, some sort of way of looking at the world that you do have a conscious element of, but that conscious element is only the tip of an iceberg of connection. And that's how you can orient yourself towards right action. But it's also arbitrary. And you fail it all the time. And it's overcome a lot of the time by self-interest, by, by narrow self-defeating self-interest, just like our greater political system is dominated by the narrow self-defeating self-interest of just concentrated capital, trying to eat the fucking foundations off of this machine. It's termites in its own fucking guts. And all that suffering will be redeemed is the thing. I believe. Because I really do believe that every hierarchy of salvation that exists and exists in pretty much all religions of any sign of significant social uh, uh, fixedness are, I'm sorry, remnants of class culture, of class rule. They are super structural. That's the part where you can say, oh, this is what distinguishes a religion as an expression of like the deepest truths that really can soothe us towards our full alignment, our best, our deepest uh, uh, sense of our self-interest in full alignment with the people around us and the, and the, in the environment around us. Uh, like that is all within our grasp. And why? Because there will be a redemption at every end. Because there will be a felt reunion. It will not be without suffering. But that suffering will be towards an end, not as the Buddhists say. No, no, individually, you, it is, it is, it is this recursion of misery, and then individuals are able to synthesize towards a point of absolute uh, transcendence. No, that's just a justification for class fucking rule. You have, uh, the Tibetan uh, lamas ruled as a feudal fucking uh, uh, dictatorship, where uh, bad performance in the uh, laboring in the in the fields will get your fucking heart hands cut off. Like there's a lot like epic, uh, epic, uh, LARPing Chinese communists love to talk about how, you know, uh, Mao actually like liberated the serfs, but that isn't a lie. They, they did have fucking feudal relations. Why? Well, you know, where you are is where you are. And, uh, it's all going to come out because society has to exist, right? In order to, to justify, everyone's social position. Like that's why Luther discarded the peasant to condemn the peasants war, condemned the peasants said, no, no, fuck you guys. This isn't what I meant because he thought that they would end the social structure, which you needed to be able to distinguish the the damned from the saved. If there is no hierarchy there, then there is no need to maintain unjust social structures because they're all supposed to 
enforce some human nature that does not exist because we are not sinful by nature. We are not sinful by nature because we cannot sin. If we cannot sin, we would not sin. And of course, that is what Christianity is most fiercely opposed to because it was fucking created first as a tool by the the Jewish uh, zealot resistance to uh, Roman imperialism. Like, I do buy that argument that Jesus was essentially trying to unify the Jewish people to effective resistance to imperial colonial uh, domination. And then when that failed, it became this new uh, structure to refound the social basis for a declining, precipitously declining Roman imperial order. Classic, I mean, classic capture and, and processing and into the, the, the greater structure, any free-floating challenges to uh, systemic power, which is why they all end in collapse and why capitalism will end in collapse, but why we're also still fucking here. Because the thing that animated it in the beginning is still among all of us, and those words have resonances that make us believe that certain symbols reflect certain feelings, even though... Our actual actions only undermine them. We don't know. It is a false consciousness. But it's everyone. Everyone has a false consciousness. But if there is salvation for all, that means that everyone has a breaking point that is not to be feared. Because it is only when we imagine that the break is towards annihilation, decline, miseration, that we are stuck. Because then we're stuck trying to find the best action. And wouldn't you know it, there is no good action. All action is fucked. Everything leads to the same ruin. Then why do you act? You can only act at that point, I submit, out of love. Christianity was an attempt at asserting uh, political control of the Jewish subjects of the Roman Empire. Jesus thought that if he could get them to believe he was the Messiah, that they would be able to together create heaven on earth by overthrowing the Romans. That is, I think, what Christianity was. It was an attempt to uh, re forge a stagnant Judaism that had outlasted its uh, energy that it had gained as a as a survival strategy for desert nomads and had become this like permanent structure within the greater economy of the Roman Empire. But it didn't work. The Pharisee said, no, Jesus went to the cross, I think, kind of convinced that God would intervene in the form of the people would, like, rise up to save him, or the uh, Pontius Pilate would be, uh, like, intimidated, that there would be some ignition of a popular revolt. And then when that didn't happen, 
he had the guts that he, instead of saying, actually, fuck you guys, that was a bad idea, you all fucked me up, he instead took it upon himself and said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, honestly, I think people are good because what it is to be a person is good. The idea of the person that we all live is good. It's just we can't live that way. We're not allowed to. But we have to all pretend that we are those people because otherwise we would realize we were amongst monsters and that we had become monsters ourselves. And then we would have to stop and fight. And that could not be allowed to happen. And so then the resistance to the Roman Empire that was localized to the, uh, the periphery, to these, uh, these recalcitrant uh, Hebrews, becomes much more generalized as the empire starts to come apart. And, the, and Christianity once again emerges as a potential threat. Now not just confined to Jews, though. Confined to everybody in the empire. And it was neutralized but not by being destroyed because it had gotten too far deeply entrenched, but rather redirected and reconsecrated towards the existing order and the apocalypse becoming a, uh, not a political horizon that everyone should be seeking, but a, a, uh, a fait accompli from God that we should await patiently. And in the waiting, submit to our roles. And originally that worked because everyone thought it would be within their lifetime. Christian, Christianity at its beginning it cannot be argued, I think, persuasively that that there was not that um, Christianity was not fully invested with the millenary expectation of Im imminent apocalypse. And of course, there was an apocalypse. The fucking Roman Empire collapsed, but they were too busy siphoning off their little fucking fiefdoms and and, and uh, becoming uh, bishops and and arguing about the about donatism. And, and and killing all the heretics. Oh no! What are you? You're a well. You're a um. Don't you get out of here, donatists! You fucking assholes! Like why would you be fighting over this bullshit? Because the political potential had been neutralized by that point. And then Protestantism, Protestantism emerges. First of all, resistance emerged immediately because. Christianity did still have this revolutionary potential, and it was expressed by a bunch of uh, uh, res uh, resistance, like the Neopolitans against the Byzantines. Uh, the, I'm sorry, Neopolitans against the Byzantines. The uh, the Bogomils in in the Baltic, the Cathars to an extent in France, where the first crusade was launched, where the bishop said, "Kill them all; God will know His own." When they went in to slaughter them. The, uh, um, who else we got? The Lollards of England with our boy, uh, Wesley. And you got, so they're all popping off. And then you get like, uh, then you get the nationalist tinged ones, like the, uh, the, um, the Hussites in Bohemia, where, where, yes, you have this religious expression, but it's being welded to nascent nationalism. The, these national, this uh, this Czech-speaking urban population that's now resisting their feudal German overlords. 
So what do you know? They actually get a settlement out of it. They don't all get killed. They get to maintain their ultraquist church because they're connected to real uh, power as opposed to peasant revolts, which are always neutralized and uh, defeated because the peasants are less socially organized than the urbanites. And then Protestantism finally emerges, and you get the revolutionary potential there in the form of the Peasants' Wars, which, of course, Luther condemns, because we need a state. We need the—he hated, the, hated the, the princes. He thought they were all swine. He thought they were all going to hell. But you know what? He needed them to hold up the system so that people could find their salvation, so that people could read the book, so that people could go to church. Because what's the alternative? Living amongst the animals like savages. It's like, you mean— Finding a way to socially share production so that you don't have to, so that you don't get to sit on your fucking fat ass all day, your Franciscan ass. Hey, maybe the reason you're so worried about going to hell all the time that you needed to post 95 theses is that you're just sitting around all the time. You're not doing any work. How about you get a real job, you fucking asshole? I know that's very funny for me to say, but it's the same fucking motivation. If Luther had had to have a real fucking job, maybe he wouldn't have had to have his precious, perfectly uh, aligned religious doctrines. So that means, oh, I can only determine who gets saved and damned if I'm able to have my little, uh, my little house paid for by this wonderful, beneficent uh, elector of, uh, of, uh, No, he wasn't the, it was the Duke. No, he was the elector of Saxony. Yes, the elector of Saxony. Frederick the Wise. Sac yes. Luther's dad was a, uh, was a contract miner. He took out, he, he made, he say, he's a go-getter. Grind set, the kind of guys who made Protestantism. What uh, he was too nervous to sit around all day and, and like chew on a hayseed and just stare at the sun, vibe out, which is what you should be doing when you're not working, vibing out. Can't vibe out. Saves a bunch of his fucking money, goes to the city, leases out some mines, uses new mining technology to mine for silver, or um, or like uh, coal, something like that. I don't know, maybe both. And he becomes a big shot in the town. He becomes a burger. He becomes a town counselor. But he's borrowing money his entire career. He barely he pays it off like right before he dies. And so that turns you into like a fucking neurotic. And then you have a little neurotic freak kid who gets scared by a lightning storm and decides to become a priest so he can... He can worry about his salvation because he's guilty? Because he's sitting on top of fucking unearned lucre? Because he gets to sit on his ass, because the fucking Franciscan, because uh, the 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 monk orders the, that he was part of were just daycare centers for overgrown royal and uh, uh, um, urban children, like jumped up peasants and and uh, and like slow witted uh, noble children. They're just hanging out drinking beer. But a sensitive soul like Luther has to worry about that. Oh, this doesn't seem right. Well, how do we rationalize it? Because I don't want to be the one going to hell. 
But what if there isn't a hell, you dumbass? What if the what if the what if any suffering you fear is a cleansing one? What if any anything that you bring to yourself because you think you deserve it, you will inevitably find yourself forgiving because you are connected to something so far greater than you that you couldn't maintain the wrath of centuries, the sort of mind-obliterating horror that we fear. Because at the end, we're all holding each other. And yeah, this is all like hippie bullshit, and it's certainly self-exculpating. Like, oh, wow, look at you. You get to keep doing what you were doing. Yes, true. I am. I do. It's awesome. But I was always free to do whatever I wanted to do. But what that felt like before is different than how it feels now. And I feel like that is the justification I need. Anything other is the yellow wallpaper. It is the liberal desire to, to deny reality, which is that the only way this works is if you pare down significantly your uh, personal uh, adherence to, I don't know, existence? Now I'm kind of trailing off. Just like you're not the center of the universe. And there is a difference. There is a way to experience life outside of your own head fully. And you know what those things are if you can experience them. But that means taking action and specifically taking action that goes against what your narrowest self-interests are. And the only way you can distinguish those is looking at, in the past, what has caused one thing to happen and what has caused another. And then applying that to the moment. And what I have found is that the one thing that like unclenches all hands that are like around my neck about decisions is getting rid of the fear of uh, consequence. Like, okay, if there is, if it doesn't matter either way, if it has no, if it's not going to have a good or a bad outcome on you, if there's no long-term punishment for the wrong decision, then what do you want to do? And those things, the answer to those questions tends to be, how a certain thing would feel. And it's only people acting from those moments that are going to build meaningful alternatives to capitalism. But the reason that that is not idealism, when I say that, though, is that they're going to be forced into acting. It is not going to be people making a choice to do it. That's what that that's the order of operations that I think people assume and that gets them tripped up. They're go, everyone is going to have to move. Everyone is going to have to put one foot in front of the other because we are not going to be able to protect ourselves, cocoon ourselves from the consequences of our actions the way we have before. Things are going to get tighter one way or the other, psychologically or materially. And that means that we are going to be pushed in directions. And if we trust our our, in, our intentions, that should push us in the right direction, shouldn't it? Because remember, we're getting pushed. The stuff that we think we're making decisions to do, that's all the stuff that, uh, that we're choosing to do, and we end up just choosing to ignore something that is otherwise inconceivable, which is what 
the enormity of, of the end of consciousness, the enormity of the surrender of life. And so that is why we can make a practice of huffing gasoline and waiting for the end. Because, well, instead of huffing gasoline, huffing uh, truthaline. I don't know. But no, like, if you are waiting, if we are all everyday waiting, then what should we do while we wait? And I think, ideally, we would concentrate ourselves fully on, like, uh, addressing every problem in our life. But that's not realistic. We, 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 we need to... Uh, not burn out because we would because we are wired towards a very narrow understanding of physical pleasure of 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 uh of satisfaction of, of relief we have to expand that and the only way to do that is to let that discomfort wash over us rather than uh avoid it but we're going to have to to some extent avoid it just to prevent us from feeling the need, well, okay, we have to extinguish this right now. But once you get to that point, now you're just trying to end this bad feeling. And that's going to drive you in the wrong direction. You have to let the bad feeling sit too. Have I heard of DBT, dick and balls torture? Yes, no, it's it's very frustrating because everything really does lead in in one like general direction. Like I mean, I'm really not saying anything different, I guess, than the people who 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 t- decided to tell people that it's colonialist to tell people not to eat fucking hot ice cream or something. You know, like Oreos are uh, are uh, in, are indigenous social practice. But I guess the difference is they're doing it, you know, to get people to eat Oreos. And I'm doing it essentially as Oreos. So I would say that my Oreos are probably not as bad for you as real Oreos. So if that's the case, then hey, I have less bad for you Oreos. Zero trans fats. Yeah, I guess I just need to always get back to the insufficiency of of uh, of entertainment and uh, a a very expansive definition of the word entertainment. But of course, I'm trapped in that box, and I live that contradiction. But you know, it's doing this that allows me to be with people I love, and it'd be harder to love them. And it'd be harder to love me if I was struggling some other way. And why would I want myself for that? Why would I want that for myself? It's not to punish myself. I don't know what, you know. 
But again, it's it's these it's a pole that's always shifting, and you just have to ride it. It doesn't fucking matter. Thank you very much. It doesn't matter. <sighs> I think we are going to see a, a drop in American life expectancy. I think that's it's already starting, and it's I think it's going to accelerate for sure. But I think we'll all meet each other in the sweet by and by, which, again, I think is an incentive to action, to meaningful action. Because if there's nothing left to do but love, then, you know, do what that commands you. And, it, and I think it, it, it aligns every one of your poles the right way. But it has to be, it has to be consecrated uh, in some sort of social structure. It has to be reflected socially so it, it seeks community it seeks collaboration it's like a it's like a tuning fork Yeah, we're all we're all dinosaurs. We're all gonna be very cool skeletons. We're all gonna look really cool in the in the firmament when they're when when the tentacle creatures come to to excavate our our great sites. Yeah, my money is on the uh, hybrid. My money is on the evolutionary uh, uh, convergence of lobsters and uh, um, octopus. That's where I got my money. But the thing we have to remember is that there is no direct uh, uh, relationship between our individual sins and the uh, likelihood of uh, the, like bad things happening in the near future. Or put it another way, uh, like bad things happening are not uh, accruing because of our actions. Individually, I mean. Of course, you know, collectively, yes. But individually, not. Individually, we are not contributing anything. Just our presence, basically. Uh, like our, our part in the circuit we're not independent actors so therefore we can't judge ourselves morally which means it can never be a direct one-to-one -one relationship you're never going to be directly punished you're going to just exist and then something's going to happen to you to end that and it's not going to be any judgment put on you and that i think is what wires a lot of us to hypochondria in my case and then also broadly social hypochondria an obsession with the end coming. Of course, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but it means that there is a psychic pull towards that goal. There's a reason that you want that to be true. A reason that is deeper than thought. 
At least I think that's true in my case. I think I've found a lot of it for me. I know. I mean, my experience is not universal, but I feel like I am very. I'm a very bad and and like end stage Puritan brain. Like I think I I inherited the final level of like that. Uh, the modern like liberal subjectivity that persisted until it started to break apart with the technological revolution of the uh, internet. Because I have no belief in a, for most of my life, I had zero belief in a supernatural. Didn't believe in God, didn't feel his presence, its presence, her presence, zer presence. I had no connection to an uh, etheric plane. It all felt, it was all fake. Um, but I still had a deeply crippling moral uh, thermometer that was wired to uh, the secular evolution of uh, Protestant ethics. Yeah, I might have a brain tumor. Who knows? You know, I just think that I uh, I, I uh, started doing more acid, and that did it. But you know, those two things are probably connected. But it's fine. That's the thing. I might be having a brain tumor. It's fine. Right now, it doesn't feel. It doesn't hurt. I'm not going to go in every six weeks and have them check my brain. That once again is I'm trying to impose some pattern. Oh yeah, I am him. Oh yes, I am. Uh, you know, uh, I have to pay for my wisdom somehow. So, but if it is, cool. Then I'm literally creating reality myself. I'm building my own narrative. That means I get to write my own ending. Oh my God. I get to write my own ending, which means I get to just high five Jesus and stroll through the pearly gates. So what am I worried about? So that means I don't have a brain tumor. So then what am I going to do? Not going to, I'm going to chill. I think all this stuff is like in all of our brains, you know, it's just, it's inaccessible to us most of the time because we are, li we live lives that deny us the opportunities for those things to get stimulated. Like group religious ritual used to do that and we got rid of it. And now it's just, we have these, these dusty circuits that are just drying up. And that's why we're all determinedly depressed because we can't imagine, we cannot feel connected to one another. We can have abstract political beliefs like I did. Oh, I think, you know, it's good for it's good for more people to be have things good to them than bad things happening. People are basically good. They should be uh uh we should protect them. But it had no connection to anything. It had no connection to the world. And why should it be? Well, you know, hey, you know, the best for the most over time. But that's so, it's so thin. It doesn't really, it doesn't sustain. It's thin gruel. You need to connect that stuff to feelings. Feelings of connection to forces, realities, truths that cannot be uh, spoken of. Cannot be communicated. 
can only be experienced. It has to be a vocabulary. Society needs a vocabulary for that. And we are cracking up in part because we don't have one anymore. What sacred games would we have to invent? And it's like uh, basically the squid game. That's the sacred game we invented after killing God. And I think that like mental illness obviously is on a huge is is is, is rampant right now, and and we talk about it largely in terms of depression, but I think that like you know schizophrenia is popping, and it's all because the, our minds are trying to process this world where we are being judged, where our actions have consequences, where we're supposed to have this moral construction of the universe where virtue and vice accrue to the character of a person towards an ultimate judgment. Uh, but also that every other person is a uh, monster and an enemy that is not you, that can't be you, that can never be united to you, that always must be judged uh, fundamentally as a threat because you will only be judged in comparison to them. Yeah, like we have things like football games. Exactly. Like we, we do, we still have the stuff, but it's been stripped of an ability to sustain us. It only sustains us in these short bursts because it doesn't build anything else. It doesn't connect to any other project. Like the final culmination of all of our, our religious countercurrents to capitalism from the Neopolitians to the fucking Anabaptists to socialism is to make heaven on earth, is to bring about the end. Now, of course, there's plenty of people in, Amer in, in America who think they want thing to bring that about, but they mean the actual apocalypse because they have totally secularized their religion with, and materialized their religion without realizing it. Like, they know. They have, turned, they have turned the world. Like, we did get left behind. Like, it happened. And now that it is, it is happening, they're going to fucking carry, they're going to cosplay their version of uh, the book of Revelation on earth. Because that is what an enthroned, demonic, capitalist, reflecting Christianity comes it, turns into. But that's nurtured by all of our worst. Our best still nurture notions of religion and, 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 uh, and social action that can be brought into alliance and forged into a new structures with new symbols that can focus and direct human energy from love and against this mindless, destructive machinery that the other side is just along for the ride for or is turning into monstrous side products of. We have to be given that we have to fight for their time to like believe 
the time to build belief, the time to be spending when we're not being directed like puppets, where we don't feel like we are no, have no guiding hand in our own lives, and then we have to vent that feeling elsewhere. I'm going to beat up on the other side of the culture divide. I'm going to use the state to make them uncomfortable. I'm going to assert my power there. That's thin fucking gruel if you actually want to act for out, of, out of love. It will not be satisfying at all. It only satisfies you if you just want, you just want sadism. It's like, well, good luck, because guess what? It all comes back, and you're going to end up in the pain box coming down from this one way or the other. Because this is all going to end up falling away to nothing in front of you, and you're only going to have the reckoning with what you did. And until that very moment, it will be just monstrosity. You're not going to have time to fucking reckon with that before you are overwhelmed by your own body fighting back to punish you. But again, eventually, that burns itself out, and the reunion is still experienced. It has to be. And that is why hell is real to the degree that we conjure it, and we all will to some degree or another, but that at the end is the same thing, at which point all of those incredibly important moral decisions deflate as if in a dream. And all of our actions go to building something else that we will continue to be a part of and that we cannot conceive of now. And that's facts. And I'm frankly still doing this. You know, so, oh, why are you spending time doing this stuff? Well, it feels really good. <laughs> like in every way, like the, 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 the hand, you know, that clenching hand that we all have wrapped around us at all times, that we are the ones, it's our hand. It's like a phantom limb. It's like when the, when the hand gets cut off and then it's still clenching and you can feel it. It's still, it's, it, but we're the one doing it and we can we can not totally release it. If we totally released it, we would just die. And some people could probably do that if they're like mind Jedis at the end of some, you know, Taoist uh, uh, pursuit of immortality. But if you're just a regular person, you're never going to have the ability to focus enough time, enough energy to actually get in charge of that hand. But you can certainly, over time, let it get more relaxed instead of get more and more tight, which is what happens if you have no recognition of the reality of death, the reality of, of extinguishment as a felt physical sensation, which we all have already within us because we already experienced it. You know, our body is tensing for it its entire time, but we can align that tension along an axis of uh, serenity or one where we're endlessly winding up towards ecstatic release which is the death drive. But those pushes towards ecstatic relief, those are good if they're pushed by love, if they're the final outcome of a love-driven thought, conscious nexus of thought, and not the indulgent actions of self-destruction that are otherwise warring with us in our minds. And that's the thing. Like We are all good in the end, but we're not in the end now, are we? We are now 
stuck in bodies that are driven by contradiction and create shadow selves that we have to reckon with. But they, they, they unravel with time, and their unraveling is pain. It's the suffering that we call consciousness. But then it is unraveled, and the hand unclenches. Nietzsche says, great problems require great love. Hot damn, that is true. <sighs> love is going to come from struggle. The struggle is happening now, but where, in what capacity, we cannot say. Not in this ether, because we're only communicating our stovepiped, isolated existences. Because that's the only language we understand. That's the lingua franca of the internet, is our neurotic, uh, plugged-in uh, uh, enchanted libido, because if we're online, it means we've decided to enchant ourselves a little bit, haven't we? We're going to boost into the matrix, right? We're going to get in there and we're going we're gonna to let all of our contradictions go away for a minute. And that's fine. We have to do that or we'll snap. We'll try to align ourselves along a, an ecstatic uh, uh, axis. But guess what? You can't do that. You try to be ecstatic, the cops will shoot you pretty quickly. You will annihilate yourself like a fucking exploding star. And you know what? It'll be fine for you, but not for the people around you. So don't do that. Because it all comes back and has to be absorbed and dealt with. Even if you go towards ecstasy, it's going to have to come back. Snap back before final reunion. People are going to fight for their lives. And in the fighting, they're going to be brought together. That is why uh, the, the zombies genre is such an important site of ideological warfare and why The Walking Dead is one of the most important shows of the last 20 years. Probably the defining show of the fucking post-9-11 uh, era. People say 24, but 24 is too specifically tied to the war on terror. The Walking Dead has a more... Uh, uh, it's the next generation. It has absorbed the failures of the war on terror to provide resolution to our fear. The fear is broken containment. Oh no, what comes next? Our punishment. And so it is this other coming to consume us, this other that will destroy us. And then of course, we all turn on ourselves, turn on each other, turn man being wolf to man, of course. But that's not it, man. There's no zombies, they're human beings. And yeah, there's plenty that's going to put us at each other's throats and make us massacre each other. But there's also plenty that's going to make us work together. And the question is, where do those lines break up? Where do those borders become porous? And that is the great challenge before us. Rhyme. And that is why I think labor is the only real site of struggle. It's going to determine everything else. Because those are the relationships that can have a greater political structure placed on top of them, that could resist the otherwise inevitable drift towards national uh, fat authoritarian blood ritual.
Yeah. Like the reason I do this at the end of the day is I this this does feel like my God help me my therapy. And I know you're supposed to do that with someone who you pay to hear you, but honestly, I could never believe in that because I'm paying you to hear me, which means you have an incentive to uh, go along with basically anything I say. Our relationship is switched. You have absolutely no reason to continue to listen to me. So if I come out here and start trying to like work things out in my head, and the bulk of people who hear it are like, that makes sense. And they don't say, which they absolutely could. That's crazy. I'm able to use just good old Bayesian analysis to say, say hey, maybe I'm on the right track. Maybe this is working because maybe my feeling better is not just on top of another uh, neuroses because the physical sensation of doing this does feel like that sort of unburdening that you are associate with his like traditional notions of r religious rapture, uh, spiritual vision, social ritual. So I have faith in myself as reflected through others. And I have faith in my ability to respond to what's to the world I live in will continue to, to direct me towards a golden path, I guess, that maximizes my own understanding of the world, my own ability to act out of... Uh, out of love with, with, with little of the, the, the friction of neurotic self-questioning that you get when you are paralyzed by your uh, pleasure principle dominating your mind and therefore driving you towards death. Then I think most of us, I believe in most of us too. I believe in, the, I believe in us because we're all the same basically. And we are t dented by trauma in one or another direction and then we're collected demographically into tranches. And yes, we have vastly conflicting interests, but the thing that holds us apart from one another is this network of institutional uh, uh, reciprocatory structures, a treat nexus that is breaking down. That's the other side of the coin that we have to consider. Is that everything that we're afraid of should also make us giddy with anticipation. We should not try to bring anything about. That's the thing. If you act in this context, you're reaching too far. You're firing before the whites of their eyes because it is the local action. It is the drudgery that is made meaningful through its performance, not the thing that is chosen to be done consciously that the meaningful work is done. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a it's a fat, rich, comfortable media guy justifying his own position. Correct. But my position, I think, is okay. I, I of the options that seem realistic, and I know what chooses those. But what else am I going to do? Start blowing up my consciousness 
Why? So to bring to, so something can save me from a contradiction that we all have to live every day of our lives. No, you got to live with it. The desire to purify our beliefs by rushing towards a headlong final confrontation. That's a mark of fear that we won't be able to sustain our beliefs in the long run. It's like, I have to do this now or I won't be able to do it later. Well, I have faith that I will. I know that that's easy for me to say. But again, it is easy for me to say, which is why I say it. We're all doing what's easiest for us. And the easiest thing for me to do is say. But I don't think that's true of everyone in every case. The easiest thing for a lot of us to do is say things to people in our lives. I just imagine it. I just imagine a network of people making a leap of faith. And if it doesn't happen, if it doesn't fall that way, it's not because it's not, those aren't still there, that we all start, still don't have these feelings, that we all still aren't, in the end, just the residue of uh, the love that we have for one another. We individually are, so it doesn't matter. We all have to prepare in the way that makes sense to us, but only if we understand what our long-term goals are. Yes, the leap of faith. Good old Kierkegaard. It's true. So yeah, we'll all find it. And I think we've all found it to some degree or another. Or we have, we've laid the groundwork. I think we're all now looking around us we're building the pediment that it will be built on. I, I, the work has gone going. We just can't recognize until it's been completed what went into it. And that's where the, the, the faith comes in. And the faith comes from the consecration of the act. And that's, of course, what made uh, Protestantism so monstrous is because it took... Uh, it took love and made it a sin. It said pleasure itself, which flows from love at its fount, is bad. And that's what imposes original sin, is that specific propaganda regime meant to build up this specific class structure, the feudal order, the rule by a bunch of disgusting, gout-ridden, fucking inbred mutants sitting on horseback. So I want to I want to end this. I've, this has gone on too long, but so uh, a good example of like this is a, a, a good. I can't. I don't even have a real answer here, but I guess just a good example of the kind of um, dilemmas that we're facing right now. So the Patagonia family announced that they are going to give their entire billions of dollars of fortune, like six billion dollars, to uh, fight climate change. 
And there's a bunch of articles saying, this is how you do it, billionaires. And then, of course, there's the people who respond, uh, this saves them $700 million on taxes, and they get to distribute the money. Uh, so this is essentially just an end around the taxation system for them to use this force, this money as an independent political force, an economic force, without tax, uh, without even being taxable now, which is something that Zuckerbergs did with their fortune a few years ago. They made it basically into a giant uh, 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 nonprofit, which of course makes sense because nonprofits are the new structure, as we talked about earlier, of uh, of distribution. Uh, of social distribution now. So that's what they're doing. But I did have to think, though. All right, if I'm the Patagonia guy, of course, it's like, well, you wouldn't be because you're not a scum-sucking billionaire. It's like, okay, say the Patagonia guy has gotten to a point in his life where he is smart enough, observant enough to take seriously global warming. He is an independent guy. He's he's his own family. They, they're not, he's not part, he's not just like an employer or something. He has total freedom. He is total noblesse oblige. He can act independently of any other class position and class interest to go, oh man, this stuff's really bad. My money doesn't mean anything if, if I got to like live in a fucking underground bunker for the rest of eternity. No, thank you. Like guys like Peter Thiel have decided that the bunker is preferable to continuing to try to live among the uh, lower order. That it is better to purify our elite in a techno bubble than to let them keep mugging about with the hoi polloi. But guys, like, this guy's a lib. And he has gotten to a point where I want to do something meaningful with this money. And he means it. Now, of course, we could say he's still a billionaire. He's still rep Yes, but money does have influence, right? I mean, the billions of dollars, that's something. It's a, it's a center of gravity of money. You could presumably put it to some good use. If I'm him... Would I think that the best use of my money would be for the United States government to take $700 million worth of it? The United States government, Brandon's government, they would take that money and say, thank you very much. We're going to send solar-powered drones to Ukraine. We're going to give... We're going to, we're going to, this, all this money is going to the gold pens that we handed out to all the oil company executives when we signed an uh, unlimited fucking drilling for oil and natural gas. That money is going in a hole. So it would be right for him to do that. But he's still in a broader sense, bad. He's still a rich, bad guy controlling his money. The important thing is that whether he's good or bad, beside the point. Does this represent an independent influencing node within capitalism? Not, not enough. But from his point of view, probably the right thing to do. Now, of course, that money's probably just going to go to the same NCO horseshit that we already have. But again, what else is he going to do? He's going to he's going to arm the Naxalites. Is that a would that be a good use of the billions of dollars? This is actually an interesting question. This, but I think it comes down to tactics. Then, what do you think would be the better use of the billions of dollars? Go towards trying to invent carbon capture, take it seriously. Um, 
or like uh, just go all in on uh, bio geo uh, engineering, which I know a lot of people are horrified about, but there's a lot of evidence that we are past the point where we can really imagine any stable future that does not include some significant geoengineering. I don't, people don't want to say that, but it's true. Some kind of Snowpiercer shit is going to have to happen. Kim Stanley Robinson makes that very clear. One of the things that happens in um, Ministry for the Future is that India does two uh, Pinatubos, which is spraying uh, the fucking... The basically recreating the Pinatubo earthquake of 1993 in terms of filling the atmosphere with reflective shards to bounce back uh, solar energy. So there is some sort of technological part of that. In like, are our institutions so captured that they can't do good research? Could that money be put towards good, actual, useful geoengineering that could just be a stopgap towards the worst outcome that is not good for anybody? Maybe. Or would it be like, yeah, arm the global proletariat. Arm the global uh, joint dictatorship of the third world. And I got to say, if that's the one, you're bringing a, you're bringing a P-fucking shooter to a, to a nuclear warfare. Let, what? You're bringing a T sh P shooter. You're bringing a P shooter to nuclear holocaust. Six billion dollars is a fart in the wind. Of course, the fourth, the un, the un, the option, the the other option, of course, is a little more refined, where you create like a global assassin network to start killing oil executives and uh, political figures. Of course, that's so far off the table. Like that's one of those things where, well, these guys, these billionaires, they would never do that because they'd think it's morally wrong. But of course, that's built on top of their desire not to do that, not to go that far. Because again, we're all operating out of our self-conception of these things. Like there are lines these people won't cross, which is why their money can never be enough without it being taken from below, seized. But it's going to be a lot of weird shit, strange bedfellows, emergent things. All I know is anybody who who's got their money on any of the political parties turning into anything other than than the the uh, the labels on the different chassis of Ed two hundred nine killbots that patrol your fucking uh, uh, your archipelago of uh, techno dominions, your little feudal uh, enclaves. But there will be life outside the, 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 the wire is the thing. There's going to be life outside the wire. And I think we're all, I know I am afraid of like, I'm already in the wire, aren't I? And it's like, well, yeah, kind of, always. But there are grades. There are inflection points. There are branches in our lives where, where, where sort of ambient realities uh, intensify their... Uh, their domination of your conscious life. And those are the those 
branching moments are what we fear and cringe away from, but they're where I think we should put our faith that we will do the right thing. We'll all, we'll all meet together in the great by and by, I think. We're just all trying to, to relax into a, a giant universal hug, a universal mind hug. And we're fighting it, and we're fighting it, but then eventually we get hugged. We get the hug. So yeah, prepare your mind, prepare your butt, prepare yourself. Prepare yourself, you know it's a must. Gotta have a friend in Jesus. So you know that when you die, we gotta recommend you to the spirit in the sky. Bye-bye.